All right, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We continue in our series through this um, wonderful letter in which the Apostle John is seeking to encourage and assure the people of God in their faith. And so pick up where we left off last time. Verse 12, follow on your Bibles as I read out loud. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do you not love the world or the things of the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, as I said right before the reading of the passage, John is writing to encourage and to assure Christians and part of um, in, in helping Christians to grow in assurance and to move towards the joy of fellowship in God is not only is he wanting to um, give them uh, great truths, but he's also wanting to protect them from the things that would rob them of joy and rob them of assurance and rob them of fellowship with God. And so this morning he will come to a particular one of the critical issues in the Christian life in regards to your enjoyment of the Christian life, and that is how you relate to the world. You relate to the world rightly. If you have been a Christian for very long, if you have spent time in the church and you have watched people do the Christian life for quite some time, you will know, and you've probably had friends who at one point or another started out the Christian life very strong. But at some point along the way, they got choked up. And I don't mean they got teary-eyed. I mean the world choked out their faith. They lost faith. They turned away from the Lord. In fact, in the parable of the sower, the very famous parable in which Jesus talks about the various kind of, uh, those people have these various experiences in regards to the responses to the gospel. One of the main uh, groups that he's talked about there is when the seed gets scattered and the, the, the plant grows up and grows into life for a brief period of time. But then it says the thorns of the world, he says, graze up and choke out that fruit, choke out that plant. This has been the case. I have been watching this happen to friends since as long as I can remember. Those who at one time or another professed faith in Jesus, who walked with God or at least supposedly did, and yet at some point or another, the temptations and the longings for the world drew them away from God's. This is the case. There's actually a story, a little-known one from the New Testament about a man named Demas. Demas, I know that doesn't sound like the greatest names, but he was a, a faithful uh, disciple and, in fact, a missionary who supported Paul and the churches in the early church. In fact, in Colossians 4, it says that he was a hard worker along with the apostle Luke for the sake of the gospel. And he's, he's listed with about 10 other folks who are incredibly known for their incredible faithfulness to Jesus Christ in the way that they serve. And yet, sadly, at the very end of Paul's last letter, as Paul is facing execution, he writes this. He writes this about Demas. He said, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. 
that in the face of difficulty, Demas left because he loved the world. In fact, the New Living Translation says that Demas has deserted me because he loved the things of this life too much. You can feel, you can sense Paul's heartbreak as a pastor and as a friend to see a man who at one point seemed to be falling the trajectory of moving towards God and serving God to see this man walk away from the faith because he cared more about the things of the world than he cared about the love of God. And so time and time again, it is this issue that drives Christians away. And even if it doesn't drive them away permanently or completely and prove that their faith was never true to begin with, But even in my concern for so many of you, that even while you may not necessarily give yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord, that the world is still choking out your joy. That you are are this person who is not single-minded. You have a dichotomy in your life. Your life is bifurcated, in which sometimes it's like, I pursue the love of the Father. I pursue the things of God, but the other times I, I find for a season of my life or this section of my life, or this area of my life is lived entirely for the things of this world. And what it does is it actually undercuts your enjoyment of who God is. It it robs you of joy. And this is what John is seeking to protect us from. He's calling us and he's warning us against the temptation of the world. And so that's what I want to call you to this morning. To call you to the two ways that John seeks to protect you as believers from the temptations of the world. And he does it in two points, the two points I'll draw out this morning. The first is John uh, protects our fellowship with God first by exposing us to what the world is and what the world cannot provide. What the world is and what it cannot provide. First, what the world is. Now, briefly, just a clarification. Those of you, if you read the New Testament, one of the things that can be confusing, in, and you find this in, in regular life as well, is we sometimes have a word that can have multiple meanings. For example, world in the New Testament has three different ways in which it is utilized. First, the world is used as the Greek word cosmos, can simply refer to the created universe. Second, it can refer to the dwelling place of man. In other words, earth, land, the place where we live. And then third, though, the world can also refer to the dwelling place of sin and the system of sin that rules this world. In fact, we see all three of these uses in one verse, and not 1 John, but John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10. It says this, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. We see all three uses of the word world there. He was in the world, that's literally the earth. Second, the world was made through him. That's the created universe. And third, the world did not know him. That's sinful, fallen creation that looks at Jesus and denies that he is the divine one, the holy Messiah sent from God. So what you need to see is that when the New Testament talks about the world, it talks about it in different ways. And so what we see here this morning is what's talking about it in the way of the sinful world, the world that would draw you away from God. Now, in another sense... In regards to the created world, we are supposed to love the world, right? John 3, 16, the most famous passage in all of Scripture, at least in our modern day. For God so loved, what? The worlds. God loves the world, and you as believers are to love the world, to seek the salvation of the world. But the way it's being referred to here is as the sinful world, the system of sinfulness that rules and reigns in this world. All right, that's the clarification. Now let's get down to it. What is the world, and what is it talking about here? What does it mean to be worldly or to love the worlds? Well, Paul or John gives us three different um, articulations here. It talks about the lust of the flesh or the lust of the body, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're going to walk through each of those. But really quickly, that, for, that word lust or desire, 
just to give a general overview of what we're talking about in regards to worldliness here. In verse 16, when it uses the lust of the flesh or the desire of the eyes, what it's referring to in the word that is given there in the Greek is the word epithumia, which literally means over-desire. Epi means above or beyond. Thumia means desire. And it means it is you desire something beyond what you should be desired for, more than its place in this world. In other words, worldliness or to love the world is a system of thinking and living whereby you treat this material world and the values of this world as all there is or as the ultimate thing. For example, there are many things that God has given us that are very good. But the problem when you have epithumia desires, over-desires, desires in hyperdrive, is when you take God's good gifts and you put them in the place of priority, of that which is ultimate, instead of being in subjugation to God. So is there anything wrong with being human? No. God created you in his image. Being human is a wonderful thing. But to be human and to think that humanity is all that there is or to think that humanity is ultimate, that is what is called humanism. It's a philosophy that means that we are centric. There is no God, and what we matters is what matters most. Is there anything wrong with pleasure? No. God has given us wonderful things. God is a good father. God is a good gift giver. Did you know that he gave us sex? He was not simply just trying to tempt us. He gave that to us as a gift for our pleasure. He gave us good food and good drink. But when we make those things ultimate, that is called hedonism. When we make those things, we take the gifts of God and we make them ultimate over God. And John articulates what this worldliness is and describes it in three different ways here. First, the desire of the flesh or the lust of the, of the flesh. This is simply referring to the, your most natural, basest appetites. The things that you wake up in the morning and you want. Food, more sleep, sexuality, sexual pleasure, comfort, rest, leisure. In other words, these are the things that are inherent to your humanity, your natural desires that you want to gratify. The things that say, what's going to make me feel good right now? In fact, this is the, the, the ultimate thing in our day and age, is it not? If it makes me feel good, then don't you dare tell me I shouldn't do it. If it feels right, then God shouldn't speak against it. It is all about our feelings. If it feels good to me, it must be good, no matter if God's word says it is not good for me or for the world's. So that's the lust of the flesh. It is your basis natural appetites, the things that you want. The second he talks about the lust of the eye or the desires of the eye. The, there are temptations that come from within, those things that are natural to who you are, but then there's also those temptations that come from without. These are the lusts that find their genesis from outside of us. For example, you woke up this morning and you said, you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather turn over and get some more sleep. You didn't have to think about that. But you know what you didn't do? You didn't wake up this morning jealous of somebody else. It took walking into church and seeing how that person was dressed or seeing that person's car that you said, you know what, I want that. These are the things that are outside of us that incite something within us. So the second phrase, the lust of the eye or the desires of the eye, refers to covetousness. It refers to the desire to keep up with the Joneses. It's to have in the appearance, the home, the second car, the vacation cottage, the other material kind of considerations, the clothes that you want to have. It refers to the desire to keep up your status as well, not just like these peripheral things, but status, that I have a place at work, that I have social position, that I'm, my children are acceptable. These, are thing, these things can be material and non-material. And these are the things that the Christian are not, is not to love or to make ultimate. 
In other words, a Christian, that if God is ultimate, that the desires of the eyes are not to be ultimate, which means that the Christian is not to look at the promotion as that which is ultimate. He is going to be willing to be passed over for the promotion and be okay. He's not looking ultimately for success symbols and material things. He's looking for the kingdom of God. That's what he wants more than anything else. So that's the second, the lust of the eye or the desires of the eye. And third is the most confusing of sorts. It's not a words, uh, kind of a phrase that we're very used to, and that's the pride of life, John says. This, what this means is, is simply a worldliness that is characterized as somebody who boasts in who he is and what he does. If the unique quality of the desires of the eyes is that you're just trying to keep up with the Joneses, the pride of life or the pride of the possessions means that you want to go beyond the Joneses, that you want more. And in fact, you look, in fact, your confidence in your future, your hope for the future is found up in what you possess and who you are and your abilities. This is a person who's looking to glorify himself more than he's looking to glorify God's. That their life is about them, their stuff, their career, their success, their glory, their small kingdom instead of the glory of God's. See, the, the, the person who has a pride of life, it's all about I, me, my, mine. You see this in little children, and it does not go away in us adults. It just becomes more sophisticated. And this is what's called the pride of life. So that's how John describes these particular areas. The lust of the flesh, that which is your natural appetites, the lust of the eyes, your affections, the things that your eyes have set to, uh, you see and you go, I want that. And third, the pride of life. Things that would be my, my glory, my confidence is in myself. These are things that John is saying, steer away from these things. These are not to be what's ultimate in your life. The love of the Father is to be ultimate. But what he says and what he shows in this text is that while what we so often do is we pursue those things because of our natural desires or because of the jealousy or the desires of things that are out there incite things within us. And we say, that's what I want with my life. That if we go after those things, he says that there are consequences of that. And if that is not what you should go after, he exposes them for what they are, which is a dust, as vapor. And he gives two problems for what the world cannot provide. See, the, he talks about what the world is. It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But then he says, here's what those things can't provide for you. The first is this. The world cannot provide you what you really need. And what do you ultimately and absolutely need? A relationship with the Father. Verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the world and the love of the Father are incompatible. This is why Jesus says you cannot serve two masters, because either you will love the one or you will hate the other. And what Jesus says is you will either love me and you will have me, or you can have the things of this world, but you will not have me. It's one or the other. You have to choose. It is not, that, and this is how so often as Christians, particularly in an overly materialistic world that we live in as American Christians, that the evangelicalism has, while this, we have no power, is because we would, we would like to have God 30% of the time. We'd like to sing about him being our good, good father. But then we'd also want the car. And we also want the success. And we want the things of the world. And we're trying to serve two masters. You can only serve one. And the devastating part of that is what you ultimately need is you don't ultimately need new clothes or more money or a better house or greater success or more successful children or greater social standing. What you need is a relationship with God the Father. 
It has been the thing that we have longed for ever since the fall of man, that we have been pleading for, that Pascal calls the hole that is in our heart, the longing to have a God who would love us and accept us and care for us. But God the Father says, listen, you can have my love. You can have that or you can have the world. If you have me, guess what? You get all the gifts that I bring. But if you go after the gifts, you don't get me. You get me and you get the gifts, but ultimately you get me. So which is it? So the world cannot provide what you ultimately need, which is a relationship with the Father. The second thing, the things that the world cannot provide is they cannot provide anything that will last. Verse 17, what does John says? He says, these things are simply passing away. They are nothing. They are here for a moment and they are gone. Solomon talks about this in Ecclesiastes or the great teacher there in Ecclesiastes says this. Everything is a vapor. It is here but for a moment and then it is gone. And this is something that, right, if you've been in church for very long, this is like a favorite thing that we as preachers have to talk about, right? right? And we have the whole illustration about you can't take your money and your cars with you into the grave. We get that, right? But do we get that? That this world is passing away. That in, in fact, this world is merely, if you go after the things of this world, it will prove to be nothing but a mirage that vaporizes the second you try to grasp hold of it. C.S. Lewis describes the thing of this world that if you make these things ultimate, as he calls it, the allure of the things of this world, this. He says that they have the sweet poison of the false infinite. That the things of this world promise that this will be here forever. This will satisfy you. This will satiate that desire that you have naturally. This will satiate your longing for acceptance and success, but it doesn't. It is there for a moment, and then it's gone. You grasp hold of it. It's like grasping hold of vapor. It promises life, but the things of this world, they give nothing but what? Death. It promises fulfillment and satisfaction, but on the end, all the things of this world provide is emptiness, whether that be athletic success financial success, vocational success, parental success, it is a vapor. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. These things promise significance and value and purpose, but at the end it says you are nothing but dust and now you return to it. This is the sad truth and this is the hard word that John is giving. He gives the admonition. He gives the admonition as a warning and here's how he's, this is a protection for brother, us brothers and sisters. He's saying, listen, you have, to you believers, you have God as your father. Why would you turn to lesser things? He's warning them not to turn to the promises and the things of this world. And so the first way in which John is trying to protect us and to protect us so that we pursue fellowship with God above all things is he's saying, listen, don't turn to the things of this world. Don't turn to your natural gratifying desires. Don't turn to the lust of the eyes. Turn to the Father. That's the first thing, first way he's trying to protect us, by warning us, by exposing the things of the world for what they are. The second thing, though, is the good news. This is what we find in verses 12 through 14. Not only does he expose the things of this world, but then he also encourages us. He encourages us. Our fellowship with God, John seeks to protect by protecting us, by encouraging us about who we are and what we have in Christ. Encouraging us about who we are and what we have in Christ. And John gives this kind of almost poetic form there at the beginning, doesn't he? In 12, verses 12 through 14. He mentions three groups of people, children, fathers, young men. And he goes through the list twice. He says, children, you have this. Fathers, you have this. Young men, you have this. Now, commentators debate as to what this means. Is this actually referring to children and to fathers and to young men? 
But most commentators don't believe this is actually talking about somebody who's 6 and 24 and 66. This is most likely talking about people in regards to where they are in their spiritual maturity. That children, that you are those who are young in your faith, that whether you're 6 or 60, if you became a believer next last week, you are a spiritual child. You are young in your faith. To the fathers, these are the spiritually mature ones. Those who have lived and walked with God, they may be 36, they may be 35, but they've been walking with Jesus for 30 years of their life. They're spiritually mature. Normally, this is somebody who is going to be more aged, but this is somebody who has the, the, the years behind him, someone who's walked with God faithfully for a long time. And then the young men, these are those who are in the dog days of spiritual warfare. Those who are struggling in which the, the, the shine of Christianity that initial excitement, that mountaintop experience, you've come down off the mountain, and now you're in the dog days of summer of the Christian life. It is hot and it is hard. And it is to these three groups that John speaks. And he, there's a means of protecting them. He encourages them and says, this is who you are, and this is the delight of what you have. So all three groups will walk through it. First, children. What do the children have? Children have two things. The first, it says they have forgiveness and then the second, it says they have a father. Almost without exception, the first experience, the first realization that you have as a new Christian, and as you're coming to know the Lord, is that you come to realize that because of the work of Jesus, you have a Savior and that God is forgiving your sins. Right? This is one of the first things we teach our, even our children. In Sunday school, we pound this into their heads, Right? Jesus, because of the work of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. But not only that, not only your sins are forgiven, but now you can know God not as an enemy, not as somebody to fear, but as a father and as a friend. You children, this is the basics of the Christian life. John is protecting these believers, and he's saying, listen, forgiveness is yours. The father is yours. Now, you, you know this, and you, if you understand this, this protects you. This protects you from... Think of it this way. Think about a husband and wife. And one of the great challenges of, of, of marital issues that come into my office is this, is that men who are struggling with lust. Now listen, I'm going to say this, and I'm not putting this on you wives. That, that struggle, that is not on you. That is not your responsibility. That is theirs. But here's the illustration. It is far, would men far more fall in a place where they feel like their wives don't accept them or forgive them. When you have a place where you feel like relationally you are on the outs, you're far more apt to turn to something else for acceptance, for security. That happens time and time again. In the same way, that's what, God, what John is calling us to do here. He's like, listen, you are far, you're gonna, temptation to the world is going to get a hold of you far more when you don't realize you've been forgiven and accepted and loved by the Father. You're going to be tempted to go to these other things and to believe the lies. Don't believe the lies. Only in this relationship do you have forgiveness. Only this relationship do you have the love of the Father in this way. Do you know this? This, is, this truth, when you're feeling as a young believer, run back to this truth. Now, this is the milk of the faith. There are other things you've got to come to know and understand besides the fact that God is your Father and God has forgiven you. But it, this ain't no skim milk, is it? This is grade A, full fat, right off the cow, on the farm, and it's ice cold milk, and it is good, and it is filling. This is the milk that's at the bottom of the Frosted Flakes bowl, right? This is what is what is left over. It is good stuff. Now, you have to eventually move on, but beloved children, if you're young in the faith, go back to this time and time again, this truth, because you're going to begin struggling with your faith, and you're going to begin struggling with sin, 
And you're going to go, oh my goodness, am I forgiven? And the truth is yes, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. All of your sins have been nailed to the cross, and you are loved and you're accepted dearly by the Father. That's the milk of the faith. You know it. And this is the beautiful truth. This is what John is saying. He doesn't say, and this is what the Christian has. Forgiveness is not something that you hope to have, Christian. It is not something that you have access to. It is something, John says, you have it right now. It is yours, young believers. It is yours. And how can that be? How can we have such certainty, Christians? Because it says we are forgiven, what does it say? On account of his name. When it talks about on account of his name, it simply means all that Jesus is and all that he does. The fact that he died the death that you should have died, that he lived the life that you should have lived. He talks about it in John chapter 2, verse 1. How does it begin, chapter 2? Dear children, my beloved children, do you not know that you have an advocate for the Father, one who has covered your sins and covered you with his righteousness. So that's the first encouragement John gives to you young believers. Time and time and time again, go back to this truth, that you're forgiven and you have a father. Second group, to you fathers, you spiritually mature ones. To fathers, these fathers, what John says is the great truth for you is you have a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus. John says to the children, he has written to them so that they know they have a father. But now he writes to the fathers and he says to him, not only do you know him, but you've known him who is from the beginning. Who is the him he is referring to? Now certainly he could refer him to God just generally. The, tr- the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Trinitarian God, or God the Father. But what is, I think he is speak- particularly speaking of, in John's speak, is he's talking about the Christ for example, let me give you some illustrations from other places that John has spoken, his other books. John, not the first John, John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is from the beginning? Who is it referring to in John, chapter 1, verse 1? It's talking about Jesus. In 1 John 1, 1, the very book that we're studying, it says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Who have they seen? What have they touched? Jesus, the word of life. And then in Revelation, chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus is talking from his throne above, and he says this. And again, Revelation is the book of John. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, what he's saying is fathers have come to know, have have had a relationship with God that is deeply rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, certainly baby believers know Jesus. The, the, The young believers know Jesus. They know the Father and they know Jesus. But there is something here that is going on more. When he talks about the one who is from the beginning, that's both referring to Jesus, but it's also putting a time stamp on this. That God has proven himself from the beginning and the end, that he has been the Alpha and he is the Omega, that he has always been the one who is faithful and provides, and that those who are mature in the faith have come to know that faithfulness in God. In other words, they have walked the weary road. They have walked the road of suffering, and yet they've experienced how Jesus in his suffering comes and joins them and enters into their suffering. They've experienced that when they haven't been faithful to God, yet in Jesus Christ, God is still faithful to them. And so they've come to know in a much deeper and fuller way and experience a knowledge of God. And so what John is saying to the spiritual fathers is a means of protecting them, of saying, I want you to experience fellowship with God. I don't want you to move towards the world. Go towards God as he is saying, listen, I know you've been doing this for a long time. I don't have to say much to you guys. You know that walking with God is better than the things of the world. You've done it. 
You've done it for 30 and 40 years, and God and his faithfulness has proved it to you over and over and over again. One of, one of the, a talk that I love to listen to, I, about every two months I pull it out. It's a talk from a pastor. He's not super well-known, but he gave a talk after 25 years of ministry of what he had learned. And the first thing he said, he was speaking to a bunch of young church planters, and the first thing he said is this, walk with God. And he said, after 25 years, this is a pastor who has about 6,000 people in his church. He said this. He said, it doesn't matter what success you have in your life, that what I have come to realize is there is nothing better than experiencing fellowship with God. And when you come to understand that, the rich man doesn't get to buy you. The beautiful person doesn't get to own you. The powerful people don't get to sway you. Because what you want more than anything else is you want to know God. And you've experienced it time and time again. So John just simply reminds them, hey, you spiritual fathers, stay engaged. Keep pursuing God. You've done it for 40 years. Keep going in that direction. And may I say this, spiritual fathers, this does tend to be those who are older, right? Because it requires some years usually. There are certain transition times in life in which you, there is a great transition to cash in your chips. Can I say this? Particularly, I would say this. There's a great temptation when your kids move out. Life gets easier. The bank account gets bigger. Life is not as difficult. At least you can forget the problems of your children every once in a while. Right? And here's what I would say. In that moment, the temptation is to move out to the vacation home, to give up, to cede authority on the field. But that's the moment that spiritual fathers, we need you to stay engaged. We desperately need you because there's children and there's young men who need you here. To tell you God has been faithful, let me tell you about it. 15 years ago, I had a kid who did this. God is, God is faithful. There was a time when my wife was stuck up in the hospital with a bad back, and I, didn't know, I couldn't take care of the kids and go to work, and it was, I had no idea how God was going to provide. I, here's the time I got fired, and God was faithful. Let me tell you about it. Spiritual fathers, we need you. Stay in the battle. Stay in the battle. Stay engaged. Keep pursuing a relationship with God. Do not rest on your laurels, but stay on the field. Last group John talks about to encourage is this, is young men. And to young men, he gives the most, the most words. To young men, he says this, you have strength, you have the word, and you have the victory. By the way, again, this is spiritual, talking about those who are in the dog days of Christian life. He speaks to young men, and I will speak directly to young men, but this involves you ladies as well, you spiritual mothers. John is writing into a patriarchal society, so this is normally how he refers to in regards to men and fathers. But this is a word to young men for those who are in the midst of the fights. This is for those who don't see the starting line anymore, but they, they sure don't see the finish line. For those who are tired because the race is grueling. Parents, we talk about it this way, right? When we talk about how hard parenting is, we say this. This is the statement people make all the time. The years go by so fast, but the days are so long. And, and those who are in this season of your Christian life, this is, that's true for you as well. It seems like things slip by, long sections and seasons slip by in a hurry, but the days seem so long. And which these are the folks in which you are dealing with, for the first time, many, many struggles. Another bill, another tragedy, another challenging season, another season of feeling very little joy in your faith. 
The first time in which you realize that the church is not made up all of wonderful people. It's disillusioning, isn't it? It's hard, isn't it? These are those who, they're walking the weary road, day in and day out. This is why, as one author says, the discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. But the problem is when you have been going in the same direction along the same way for years upon years upon years and there seems to be no end, you have a temptation to give up, to sit down, to stop running, to stop walking. And so to you young men and to you young women, women, John gives this pep talk. If you're to run the race well, you have to know this, that there is strength for you, there is a word for you, and there is a victory for you. Let's just walk through those really briefly. First, he says, you are strong. You know what what it doesn't say? You know, God calls Joshua. He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. But John gets to tell you this, because you are spirit and dwelt, young men and young believers, that you are strong. It's not something you will be or you have been. It is what you are. You are strong now. The Holy Spirit of God and all of his power resides within you. And so I would say this, if you are discipling or mentoring somebody, there are times, there are many times where I've had to sit early in the morning, having a bad cup of coffee, having to look at somebody, a young man, and say, listen, this has got to change. That ain't, that ain't right. You got to get your fanny in action in this area. But there are many times, many times, where when I, I sense that what this person needs more than anything else is I need to tell them, listen, I know you're struggling and I know you're that particular area of fight in your life, you seem to keep losing, but remember this, you are strong. You are not weak. You have been set free from bondage. You are not bound to sin. You are not bound. How do they get strong? Well, not only are they strong, but God also provides, and what John provides them is a word of encouragement, that they have an indwelling and perpetual source of strength. And what is that? The word of God who abides in you. It explains that young men are strong not because it's a strength in and of themselves, but because they have the word of God. These are the young men. These are the young women. And this is the pressure cooker of life. And this is what's so great about it, though. And who are taking the gospel and they are moving beyond simply, I just have this general knowledge that God has forgiven me and that he is my father. But in all these these areas of my life, in the struggle in parenting and in relationships and in my finances, I'm appropriating the gospel and I'm driving the truths of the gospel down. That I'm taking those truths and I'm saying, how does this apply to my life? And guess what? You know when you apply those truths most often? In the midst of suffering. In which God goes, all right, we need a lesson on this. I want to drive the truth of my word and the beauty of what I've given you in the gospel further in this area in your life. And so here's a little bit of suffering. Here's a challenge. May the truth be driven in more. And this is what we need. It's a time and time again. This is the power that we possess. That when life is hard, when the Christian faith feels like a grind, when it feels joyless, is to go in deeper into the word of God to find the truths that are there. There's a reason why, why David says in Psalm 119, verse 9, he asks this, how can a young man keep his way pure? How? By living according to your word. It is the power that is always available to you. And in fact, it says in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that the very word of God is not just something you get to memorize. You should do that. But the word of God, by the spirit of God, has come to reside in you. And lastly, he tells them of their victory. Not a victory that's in the future. You see the grammar? Grammar matters. 
Young men, you have overcome. That means you have a victory that is past, present, and is future. They have overcome. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of the blood of the Lamb. You are not in bondage anymore. By the strength of the word of God, you are a strong one to overcome evil. And this is the point where he wants to emphasize. In fact, he says it twice, doesn't he? He says the same thing to young men. Victory, victory, victory. So you got to drive these truths in. Now here's the question. We come to a close. How do we know this encouraging words are true? The world tells us, our desires tell us, if I get that, it will last. If I get that, that is my satisfaction. How do we know these things are true? When God says you're forgiven, when God says I'm your father, when God says you're going to know me, you know me deeply, and my word abides in you, fathers. When God says you are victors and you are strong, how do we know it's true? Because of the work of the gospel. You see, the world makes promises and does not deliver. Everything is mere potentiality that is never met in the world's promises. But in the gospel, it is no longer potentiality. It is guarantees in Christ Jesus. And oddly enough, this is found in an odd place in this text. We looked at these three temptations, flesh, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This actually connects back to the very temptation in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. If you have a Bible, turn there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Look at what the woman and the man experience. This is the fall of man. Verse 6, it says, The woman saw the tree, that it was good for food. What is that? The appetite, the lust of the flesh. That it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. That you're wiser, and you're better, and you know more than anybody else. That's the three temptations in the garden. And man fell. Adam and Eve fell. But guess what? Somebody else faced those three same temptations as well. You know, there's a very direct and specific place in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It's called the temptation in the desert. Jesus has just been baptized. And you know what God the Father says at his baptism? The same thing that John is telling us. You know what he says to Jesus? I am your beloved Father, and you are the one in whom I am well pleased. And then he says, go and face some temptation. And what are the temptations Jesus faces? What is, here's what he faced. The devil comes and says to him in verse 3 of chapter 4 of Luke, command the stone to become bread, lust of the flesh. Showed him all the kings of the world, lust of the eyes, what he could see. And then third, he says, from, your, from this place, from the height of the temple, throw yourself down, and the angels will take charge of you, and everyone will see your value. Pride of life. Here's what I want you to see. And here's the gospel here this morning, is that Jesus denied himself all the promises, the lies of this world, the false promises, because he loved the Father and he loved us more. And he was living for more than the vapid promises of this world. And so he resisted. He fought the good fight. And what does it say? It says coming out of Luke chapter 4 that he set his eyes on Jerusalem. In all the gospels, what that means is this, he set his eyes on the cross. He set his eyes on accomplishing our forgiveness. How do you know that all the promises of 1 John 2 are real? That you have forgiveness, that you have a father, that you are victorious. Because Christ has won the victory. Because Christ has won the forgiveness and Christ has won the way for God who was once your enemy to be your father. And he won that victory because of not just his passive righteousness in which he was killed on a cross, but he was actively righteous on your behalf. 
He actually lived out the obedience that you couldn't live out. And so John is telling us, and what he's doing in this whole text and trying to protect us is he's saying, look at the deficit of the world. Isn't Jesus better? That's the whole point of this section. The world's promises are this, but Jesus is better. Just run through the various promises of the world. Jesus is better than money. God is an infinite, loving supplier of all our needs. His love, his provision never wavers like the stock market. It's better. Jesus is better than human love, right? Amen. Human love is fickle. It comes and goes. It's in and it's out. Earthly marriage is just a shadow of the love that we crave, and it's the love that we can have in God the Father through Jesus. Jesus is better than earthly pleasures. At its best, earthly pleasures are meant to point us to all the pleasures that we are to have in God through Jesus. Jesus is better than earthly power, than earthly success. He gets success, how? By dying. That's the strategy of Jesus' success. And yet in that success, he shows his power, that he sustains even on the cross every molecule and atom and neutron and electron so that all the promises of God are true because he can bring them about. Jesus is better than popularity. He's better than anything we have. And whatever you compare to God in this life, guess what? God wins. That's what John is saying. Brothers, move towards fellowship with God. Turn away from the things of this world because in every, every lineup, God is better. The, father, the world says, offers unmet, unfulfilling things that pass away. The Father provides declared realities, things that you can already enjoy now. The world does not deliver, it does not satisfy, and does not last. God says, listen, you're going to have this relationship with me forever. You know how long forever is? Longer than just life. It's forever. The love of the Father, it satisfies, it fulfills, and it cares. So what John is doing is he's contrasting the love of the Father. This is that's what this is. This is not a, hey, obey, and don't do this, and don't do that, and do this, and don't do that. What this is in this whole section is this. What do you love more? You see, this is a tale of two loves. Do you love the Father and all of his promises that have been guaranteed in Christ Jesus? Or do you love the things of the world which make promises and never deliver? Oh, beloved, I hope you choose the promises of the love of the Father, which is yours even right now, and that you pursue a relationship with him day in and day out to turn away from those things and say, Jesus is better. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminders from good pastors like John who would admonish us, who would say the hard things to us, who would speak the truth to us in a world of lies, who would say to young men and to young women, to young believers and to spiritual fathers, the world, it ain't enough. It isn't enough. I have something better. So gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would change our desires, that Lord, you would make us new from the inside out, so that day in and day out, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, that the greatest longing of our heart would be, I want to know Jesus, I want to know God the Father, I want the joy of fellowship with him. And Lord, through that, would you bring us home, bring us into assurance and fellowship with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.